Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. We love being a part of a bigger story. The Vine loves to be a part of a bigger story here in Austin. So because of that, we invite friends from all over this beautiful city to come and to share God's word. Today, you guys are in a treat, in for a treat. This is Matt Freeman. Matt uh, serves Community First which is a community of uh, formerly chronically homeless people who, are, who live together in this beautiful community in East Austin. And Matt is their spiritual leader, their pastor dude. Literally his business card, yeah. pastor dude. And this is Matt Freeman. So will you please welcome Matt Freeman. Please. Thank you. Thanks, Good. By the way, that's the best title I've ever been given in my whole life. And I am more dude than I am pastor and uh, it's proven out as I, uh, I struggle many, many, many times with driving under the posted speed limit. Anybody else struggle with that? Um, my wife, Chris, is my accountability partner in this area. She reminds me frequently uh, of my need to abide by the law. And it reminds me of the story of the, uh, the gal that was driving down the road. And she was moving at a very rapid rate of speed. And a police officer pulled her over. And he said, I'm going to write you a ticket for speeding. And she said, officer, I was not speeding. That sign back there said 92. He said, ma'am, that's the route number, not the highway. She said, oh, I'm glad you said something. You should have seen me back on 144. (laughs) You know, um, a lot of times we don't understand what the signs say, and I I want to just kind of make sure that we're all on the same page and understanding the signs that we see as we're driving down the road. So you'll see a couple of signs, and when you see the signs like this, I want you to shout out, what does this sign right here mean? Anybody? Yeah, the road is wet, slippery when wet, okay, not a reference to the 1986 Bon Jovi album, Um, slippery when wet. What about this one? Yeah, it's a deer crossing. It's not a permission for the deer to cross. It's a warning for us to be careful because deer perhaps could be crossing and that could create potential hazard. Uh, What does this sign right here mean? It it, it means you, you need to go at least 40 miles per hour or under. Not 45, not 50. This is not a suggestion. And I think we struggle with this. You know, we struggle with, uh, with, with uh, really understanding the limitations when we see a sign like this. I think this sign right here is frustrating for us, if we're real honest. I think this sign is perhaps the most frustrating. What does that sign mean? Yeah, it means you, you, you can't go this way. Yeah, you got to take another path. You, you need to detour. You need to take an alternative route. I think that's frustrating for us. Uh, practically, when we're driving down the road and we've got, you know, a plan and we, we've got to be somewhere and we bump into the detour sign. And it's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. It's not what we anticipate. It's not what we expect. A lot of times it produces frustration. And I would suggest to you, if that's true for us when we're driving down the road, it is much more true for us spiritually when God says, I don't want you to go here. I've got another way for you to go. God is in the business of giving us detours. And so here's the 
question I want to throw out, and I want us to ask it and answer it together, and it's this question, what do we need to learn when God detours our journey? What is it that you and I need to learn when God says, no, I, I don't want you to go here. I've, I've got another way to, to move in your life. I want to redirect you. So what do we need to learn when we uh, encounter the detour sign that God a lot of times posts in our lives to, to redirect us? Well, if you have a Bible or you want to turn to the book of Ruth, which is the eighth book in the Old Testament, Last week we started with Ruth chapter 1, today we're going to transition into Ruth chapter 2, but in order to fully understand Ruth chapter 2, we need to go back and really summarize Ruth chapter 1. And what we see, the first thing we see here is that God's detour provides a tangible way to express His providential care. God's detour provides a very real way for you and I to experience His providential care. Uh, when you look at Ruth chapter 1, let me just kind of summarize the story. If you weren't here, maybe you were on the retreat last week. Let me just kind of bring you up to speed on, on what Ruth is really all about. It begins with a woman by the name of Naomi. Naomi, by the way, in the Hebrew means pleasant or pleasantness. And Naomi is married to a man by the name of Elimelech. They have two sons. They are living in Israel, in Bethlehem, uh, which translates, by the way, in the Hebrew to mean the house of bread. But there is no bread in the house because a famine has entered into the nation of Israel. And so during this time of famine, uh, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons decide they will leave their spiritual community. They will leave the land of promise, and they're going to go find some food. And so they make the, the, the journey to Moab to a territory about 40 miles away from um, Bethlehem, and they end up in Moab. Now, it's important to understand that the Moab, Moabites, that territory, was uh, inhabited by people who, um, who really did not have a, a real positive heritage. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter 19, Moab began when Lot entered into an incestuous relationship with his daughter. So that's how the nation began. And Israelites looked down upon Moabites. There was lots of hostility between those two countries. They did not like each other. If you look at Numbers chapter 25, there's a story of the Moabite women who seduced the Israelite men into sexual immorality and into the worship of false gods. And God intervened and 24,000 Israelites were killed as a direct result of God's judgment. And so there's all this hostility and this baggage between these two countries, and that's where Naomi and her husband and two sons end up, away from their heritage, away from their spiritual community, away from the land of promise, and now in the land of compromise. Now, if that's not bad enough, what ends up happening is tragic because Naomi's husband, Elimelech, suddenly dies, and then her two sons end up marrying heaven help us, Moabite women, women uh, who Ruth probably did not envision her two sons marrying. You get the picture here? Things are not working out for Naomi. And uh, then what ends up happening after 10 years of her two sons and two daughters-in-law being childless, which is a sign of really not receiving a blessing, the two sons suddenly die. And so Naomi is a widow 
her two daughters-in-law, they are widows, they are childless, and they are without any provision whatsoever. 3,000 years ago when this story was written, um, basically widows had no provision, no protection, no government assistance. They were left on their own. Naomi had lost her husband, her two sons, and now she has two foreign Moabite daughter-in-laws. And Naomi is sad. In fact, here's what she says in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. You can see the verses up on the screen. Uh, when she uh, decides she's going to go back to uh, Bethlehem, back to her country, Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, says, I'm out. Ruth says, I'm in. I'm all in with you. Wherever you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God. I'm going to be with you. And so Ruth and Naomi make their way back to Bethlehem after being gone for a long period of time. And as the people greet Naomi, here's what she says. She says, don't call me Naomi, which again means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which translates to mean bitterness. The Almighty has made my life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So it says in verse 22, Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman, and they arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Don't miss that part right there. They arrive just in time so that they can eat. They are hungry. They are homeless. They are hopeless. Uh, Naomi is a not just a broken woman, but she is bitter, and she is evangelically ticked off against God. God has brought misfortune upon me, and Ruth is accompanying her. And what Ruth has done has basically said, look, I could stay back in Moab and find another Moabite man to marry, and I could probably start another family, but I'm, I'm with you. And Ruth is a beautiful picture of God's providential care. And so what ends up happening is they arrive in the springtime where there is a harvest, and it just so happens that Ruth meets this man named Boaz, which in the Hebrew literally means, in him who is strength. This dude was a stud. He was a man's man. If he were alive today, he would not wear a sweater vest or listen to Mariah Carey. No offense if you uh, do either one of those things. This was a dude who was a man's man. He was a man of integrity. He was financially well-resourced. He was a God-following man. And Ruth arrives with Naomi at the time of harvest, and she connects with Boaz, who owns all of this land. And what God did 3,000 years ago is he made providence or made a provision for the destitute, for the homeless, for the alien, for the foreigner to receive benefit and blessing from the fields because what God said is, look, I don't want you to bring in 100% of the harvest. I want you to leave a section for people who can't afford uh, food. And so what God did is he, he allowed Ruth to come in to that scenario and God provided providential care providential care. I was uh, trying to figure out uh, this idea of providence or uh, being God being providential and uh, really, really unique. And I, th I think a lot of times we absolutely miss out on the fact 
that God is always, always working, even when we don't understand it. He's always at work, and He's always kind of weaving together and working behind the scenes and bringing details and circumstances of our lives together. And He does it in such a way that He demonstrates that He is providential. And uh, this idea of God being providential is the idea that He is the master weaver who takes the thread of our lives, which often look like a tangled mess, and uh, He puts us together and, and, and restores us so that we might represent Him to an even greater degree. It doesn't feel that way a lot of times when we encounter difficulty and circumstances that are hard and difficult, but what God does so beautifully is He allows us to encounter hardship and difficulty, a lot of times uh, because of the sin of other people, sometimes because of our own sin, and many, many times because we live in a broken, messed up, jacked up world. What God does is He allows us to kind of bump up against these scenarios that are difficult in order that we might experience His providential care. And so God's providence then is very well connected to His sovereignty, His divine superintendence of all things, guiding everything divinely toward an end. And the doctrine of divine providence can be summarized this way. God, in eternity past, according to the counsel of His own will, ordained everything that will happen, yet in no sense is God the author of sin, nor is human responsibility removed. What God is doing in Ruth's life, in Naomi's life, is He is weaving this story together. It's difficult, it's hard, they're resettling, Naomi is bitter, Ruth is struggling to try to figure out how she's going to be accepted in this land where people despise and reject people of her race, but God intervenes. Because God is in the business when He detours us of providing tangible ways for us to experience His providential care. I found this out um, a couple of years ago. Uh, I was on the staff of a church uh, here in uh, Austin for about a decade. My wife, Chris, and my son, Zach, and daughter, Kai, were a part of this church for about 10 years, and it was a pretty good gig. And I started uh, serving out at Community First Village, uh, where they were about to start lifting the disabled, chronically homeless off the streets. And so I started showing up out there. And uh, one particular Saturday, I was working in the garden. We have this beautiful garden out there. It's unbelievable where we're growing uh, produce and, you know, all the finest fruits and vegetables you could ever imagine. And I was about five feet away from another volunteer by the name of Kathleen. And uh, Kathleen and I started talking. And we had this really good conversation, very uh, natural conversation. We started talking about a number of things, including spiritual things. And I asked her, I said, Kathleen, do you have any spiritual background? And her answer was not just no, but beep, 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 no. And she proceeded to spew venom about why she had no faith background. Uh, she grew up in a very legalistic, critical, fault-finding home, where she never felt like she measured up. And she said, man, when I left the house, I decided I would leave that part of my life behind. And she said, what about you, Matt? Do you have any faith background? I said, thank you for asking. And uh, I proceeded to share with her my story, which in a nutshell is I was a TV sportscaster about 25 years ago covering the Florida State University Seminoles 
they were doing very well at this time of um, when I was uh, working for this ABC affiliate, and I thought I was a big deal, but the truth is I was very unfulfilled and very uh, unsatisfied with life, and that became very real to me one night when I was driving home under the influence of alcohol, had had too much to drink, and was involved in a drinking and driving fatality and killed a pedestrian. And it was in jail that I had this reawakening spiritually, and I realized that my life was empty and void apart from Jesus. And that's when Jesus became more than just a good person, more than just a philosopher. He truly became my Savior and my forgiver. And I was telling Kathleen this story, and she said, when did all that happen? I said it was December 19, 1992. She said, where was it again? I said it was in the panhandle of Florida, just outside of Tallahassee. She started crying. She said, I remember you. She said, I was a journalism student at Florida State in December of 1992, and I wrote about your story. And I'm thinking, dude, that's providential care. Because what God did is He orchestrated this crazy encounter, and that particular conversation was catalytic in my journey and in Chris's journey and us as a family to step out and leave a great church staff position and go serve not just the chronically homeless and the disabled at Community First Village, but to reach people like Kathleen, who probably would not be in a traditional faith community because of her background. Let me just say this. There are no mistakes with God. None. He weaves and works together everything. Ruth experiences that. Naomi experiences that. God detours our journey to provide a tangible way to experience His providential care. That's what we need to understand. Second thing we need to understand is that God's detour provides opportunities to experience or express, rather, humble gratitude. Humble gratitude, being grateful. Everyone say, thank you. you. Turn to the person next to you and say, thank you. You You don't even know what you're thanking them for. (laughs) Thanksgiving and gratitude is a beautiful thing when you have experienced grace, when you've experienced providential care. Gratitude is an awesome thing. And what God does is he, He rearranges and He provides a detour so that we can have an opportunity to understand the essence of what it means to be empty of ourselves, full of the life that God gives us, so that we can be grateful people. Look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Ruth went out. Again, now they're in Moab, or back in uh, Bethlehem. And Ruth goes out to work. She's very diligent. By the way, God cannot steer a parked car. Okay, so she understands that she can't be idle. She needs to engage. She goes out. She enters the field. And she begins to work among the harvesters. She's gleaning. And as it turned out, (laughs) no accident, but as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. It's important to understand 3,000 years ago, the family was the basic support mechanism for widows and for orphans and for people who were marginalized. And they had this beautiful Old Testament law set up where if a family member could not step in and care for a widow, then maybe someone from a clan or someone from the tribe could step in and and meet the need. And it just so turned out 
that Ruth is working in a field with this financially well-resourced God follower named Boaz who was connected and related to her father-in-law who had passed away. Boaz begins to speak. And uh, here's what he says. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and work in another field. Don't go glean in in another field. And I, I don't want you to leave here. He says, in fact, stay here. Stay here. It's the idea of leaving and cleaving. It's the same language that's used in Genesis chapter 2 for God's mission purpose statement for marriage, where it says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become as one. They stay connected. And that's what Boaz is saying. He's not proposing marriage. He is proposing a relationship. He says, stay here. He says in verse 10, uh, or rather, verse 10, uh, Ruth is blown away. By the way, whenever we are blown away and we understand our desperate need, this is the right response. It says she bowed down. By the way, that uh, phrase bowed down is the uh, word that we get for worship. Okay, it means to posture yourself with humility, face to the ground. And she asked Boaz a very, a very simple question. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you noticed me a foreigner? Again, Moabites and Israelites did not get along. In fact, they despised each other. Ruth understands this. Boaz, I believe, understands it. In fact, many commentators believe that Boaz had a mother by the name of Rahab who was a prostitute. And so because of this upbringing of understanding brokenness and of the need for what we talked about last week, this idea of hesed love, H-E-S-E-D, a Hebrew word that means God's steadfast kindness and faithfulness to us. She asked that question. Why are you showing me grace? Like I am a despised, outcast, homeless, helpless, hopeless foreigner. Why do you take notice upon me? And Boaz speaks in verse 12. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. And don't miss this part. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I think it's really important for us to understand that 3,000 years ago, if someone is reading this and they understand Israelite history and they understand the Moabite people and they understand the tension, this is scandalous. Like this is a love story that is unbelievable because what Boaz is doing is he is demonstrating the character and the attribute that we all need to understand from God our Father, and that is you are accepted regardless of where you have been, where you are now, or where you are going. You are loved, period. God cares for you regardless of where you are on the journey. Maybe you haven't even told anyone what's going on. You're hiding behind the facade as if you have it together. You're loved. You're cared for. And by the way, you're in a safe community to be known. I love this story of Naomi and Ruth. Ruth could have said, look, I'm just going to kind of work out here in the fields. I'm just going to kind of, you know, discreetly try to 
bring some food home for my mother-in-law and maybe we'll meet some people and perhaps we'll find a family or someone who will care for us, but she doesn't do that. She is open. She has nothing to lose. She's hungry. She wants food. And she finds more than food. She finds community because she's willing to come out. And what God does is not only does He navigate the journey and redirect the journey so that we will experience providential care, but God detours the journey so that we can have opportunities to understand what we all need to understand, which is grace. This thing that God does for us that we don't deserve. And I love this story because here Boaz is. He's a, he's a Jewish man. He's an Israelite. And he is talking to a woman who is a non-Israelite. She is a Gentile. She is despised. This did not make sense at all. My friends, that is grace. It's awesome. It's incredible. It's phenomenal. And he says, look, I've heard about you. Like your, your story is out. Man, I pray that God would bless you and reward you. And then he says, May the God of Israel reward you under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's this beautiful metaphor of God being like this majestic eagle carrying or, 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 or caring for, stooping down and meeting the needs of this baby bird. And when we understand that we are under God's sovereign protection, His love, His mercy, His goodness, and it's unconditional, Man, that's a great place to be. God's detour. It provides a way for us to understand and express humble gratitude. Last thing we see here is that God's detour gets our attention so that we may enjoy liberating redemption. Everyone say the word redemption with me. Redemption. The idea of redemption is this. It's, it's being purchased out of slavery and brought into freedom. It's the idea that a, a price has to be paid because you are a slave, you're on the slave block, and someone comes in, intercedes, and says, no, you are no longer bound to your past or your present or your future. You're no longer a slave. You are a free man. That's what I am, by the way, a free man. That's my last name, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Got the little tattoo to prove it right here. Free but that's what redemption is all about, okay? It's the liberation of being bought out of slavery. So, Ruth works all day, brings home a lot of food. In fact, the uh, average ration uh, for um, someone who works a day is about one pound of grain. And Ruth, according to commentators, brings home somewhere in the vicinity of 30 to 40 pounds of grain. It helps to know the landowner, and it helps to be a hard worker. She's bringing on this grain. She gives it to her mother-in-law, and they have this conversation. Naomi says to uh, Ruth, the Lord bless him, talking about Boaz, this dude who just stepped in and, and, and reaped the great reward of grace upon them. She has obviously heard about Boaz. And she says, he has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. In other words, this is a guy who has a reputation for being incredibly generous for people who pass away as well as people who are alive. She added, 
That man, Boaz, is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now, stop right there. Uh, some uh, words or some uh, commentators or um, scriptures use the word kinsman redeemer. Let me explain what a kinsman redeemer was. Um, a kinsman redeemer is a male relative who, according to various laws of the Old Testament, had the privilege or the responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, danger, or need. And so the Hebrew term, goel, for kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer, designates one who delivers or one who rescues. And the kinsman redeemer validates a, a relative and, and rescues that relative, and in this case, rescues Ruth, and she is redeemed. She is given a new opportunity to experience life and to experience life to the full. She is enjoying the liberation of redemption. And so the backstory of Ruth chapter 1, which was all about sorrowful setback, has now been transformed miraculously into the reality of this surprising triumph. And I think the big idea is this. God is our creator. In His sovereign design, ordains sorrowful setback to often set the stage for surprising redemption. Let me say that again. God in His sovereign, and I would add providential design, oftentimes ordains sorrowful setback, the hardship, the difficulties, the, the, the things that are way beyond our capacity to navigate. What God does is He uses that to set the stage for surprising triumph. Why does He do that? I think He does that for a couple of reasons. First of all, He does that so that we can learn to spend our lives caring for the poor. Now, I don't just think caring for the poor is talking about people who are financially under-resourced, although in this case, certainly uh, Ruth and Naomi were, were poor, they were homeless, they were helpless, and Boaz was, uh, was generous. But I believe that poverty is not just a financial issue. I believe poverty can be relational, emotional, spiritual. It can be the sense that you're all alone and nobody really understands. But what God does is He... He wants us to be about the business of spending our lives to care for the poor. And let me just say thank you on behalf of what God is uniquely doing at Community First Village. Praise God for the vine and the fact that God has abundantly blessed you with resources for a specific purpose so that you can pass on some of those resources to bless those who are not capable of blessing themselves. So thank you for caring for the poor. We should be about spending our lives to care for people who are struggling, who are uh, uh, poor. Another thing we see here as far as application is we need to be about the business of loving the outcast. I'm talking about the, the, the people who are immoral. Uh, we would call it at Community First the crackhead, glue sniffer, and prostitute. The people that we despise and reject because they're dirty. Let me tell you this. Our ultimate Redeemer, Jesus, spent most of His life hanging out with tax collectors, prostitutes, and the irreligious. Who did that tick off? Us as the religious people. 
It's only when we receive this liberating redemption and we receive this new life that God gives us supernaturally the ability and the strength and the power through His Holy Spirit to love people who are unlovable, to love the outcast. And so we need to be about spending our lives to care for people who are poor, to love the outcast. And the third thing you'll see, and I think it's in your notes there, we need to be about the business of serving the needy. Serving the needy. It's what you've done with your backpacks here. And it's what you ought to be doing in your vine groups, finding out who has real needs. And when it comes time to share prayer requests, stop sharing about your grandmother's toe jam. Start talking about what's going on, really, in your marriage, in your life, the hardship, the difficulties, maybe the addictions you've never confessed. By the way, the Scripture says, when we confess our sins one to the other, there is healing. Part of the healing comes when we stop acting like we have it all together, and we start acting like we really are, which are broken people like Ruth who are desperately needy for redemption. God in His sovereign design takes those difficult things, that hardship, those things that are painful, and He sets the stage for surprising triumph. I, uh, I have one of the greatest gigs in the world. It's the hardest thing I think I've ever done in 25 years of full-time ministry, and yet it may be the most rewarding because I get to work with people like my friends Charlie and Tracy. Let me tell you their stories. And I uh, tried to summarize their stories uh, as best I could. Uh, Charlie, this is his 100-word story, functional, yet imperfect family. Charlie grew up in the country. Parents struggled in marriage, started acting out as a young man. Alcohol, recreational drug use, grades went down, sorry, Struggled in school, no future, in and out of relationship, married, divorced, married again, had a kid, unstable job history, blew countless opportunities, ended up in jail, released, freedom did not lead to wise choices, ended up homeless, alone, Powerless to control my tendency to do the, wrong, the right thing. Need help. Desperate for healing, reconciliation, and forgiveness. That's Charlie's story. Here's Tracy's story. Tracy's story is this. Highly functional or dysfunctional family. Parents divorced at a young age. Love and care missing from childhood. Insecure. Abandoned. Mom mentally ill. Dad absent. Tried to make it on my own. Always failed. Uh, maybe marriage and motherhood will be the answer. Didn't work. Fought, struggled, chaos, lost marriage, lost custody of my child, devastated. Turned to drugs instead of God. Life quickly spun out of control. Jail, in and out, nowhere to go, on the streets, no family, no help. Ended up as a prostitute to make money to support myself. No dignity. No sense of worth. God, have mercy. Charlie and Tracy moved into Community First Village about the same time. They met each other in serving the community. We have a uh, Mobilos and Fishes truck that goes out of Community First. So the formerly homeless have the opportunity to feed the currently homeless. Charlie and Tracy met and fell in love. 
And on July 1st of this year, just a few months ago, at the end of our Sunday night, uh, what we call the gathering, Charlie came up to share a prayer request, but instead of sharing a prayer request, here's what Charlie did. He got down on a knee, and he asked Tracy, will you marry me? She said yes. May 3rd, 2019, Charlie and Tracy will be married, and the beautiful thing that God is doing to restore and renew their lives fits very closely and carefully with what we need to understand, and that is that God in His crazy, sovereign, providential, mysterious way ordains these horrible setbacks and difficulties to often set the stage for surprising triumph. Would you pray with me?